is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic, Father Don Wolf, pastor at Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. And I've just gotten back from watching the new movie, Nefarious. If you haven't heard of it, it's the newest production of the same group and the same director who did that movie, God is Not Dead. This new movie is nothing like the previous one, I'm happy to say, but it does deal with the theme of belief and its impact in our world. In my estimation, this movie, Nefarious, is much worth seeing. If you don't hear anything else of my thoughts concerning the movie, hear this. The hour and a half you'll spend in the theater is worth it. So go and see it. And here are a few of my thoughts concerning it. I wasn't too excited when I heard about this new production. The movie God is Not Dead was a sincere attempt at making a film in which the topic of belief and the defense of belief in God was the principal trope. Unfortunately for the directors and producers, their notion of what's constituted belief was so anemic, their movie was virtually dead on arrival. It had nothing to do with a lack of a big budget. Their view of what constitutes belief and the church was the worst thing about the movie, which of course is precisely what they wanted to communicate to the viewers. And their notion about how to talk about God in the Bible was juvenile, which was all the more ironic since that movie was ostensibly about how to talk to God, uh, how to talk about God in a university philosophy class. Spending another million or $20 million on that movie wouldn't have helped it one bit. I wrote a review of it when it came out in which I pointed out its flaws. The best thing about it was the sincerity of the effort, although I have to say sincere belief is no substitute for real thought, especially when trying to communicate with the skeptics of our age. So I approached this new movie with some doubt. And there are a few things to complain about as far as movie making goes, but in the whole, I was pleased with the effort. The acting was good, which is a real premium is all the more important since most of the movie takes place as a conversation between two people sitting in one room. There isn't much to focus on other than the words they exchange and the looks on their faces. Happily, the acting was up to it. The scenery was compelling as well. I say that because the the action ostensibly takes place in a prison in Oklahoma, and the scenes they used look almost exactly like what I remember of my time as a chaplain at Oklahoma State Reformatory in Granite. They've taken some liberties with the sets they used, and the details are not nearly as important as the impression they give, but I had no trouble believing that the drama did take place in a prison. And finally, the focus was on the drama inherent in the story. There wasn't any attempt to stray outside of the boundaries of the narrative in order to score other effects. That's especially important given the genre of the story. It's listed as a horror movie, but let me add, the best kind. That is, there are no scenes of monsters or blood, no decapitation or ghosts, nothing to draw us away from the power of the interchange between the two characters. Whether this is because the producers were wise and experienced or because they didn't have the money to do complicated special effects, I don't know. But I'm grateful they were experienced enough to stay in their lane and to deliver what the drama of the story could offer. There's a lot of good things in simple things, and these simple aspects enhance the film, in my estimation. Now, to the story. A psychiatrist is called to a prison in order to determine whether a condemned prisoner is in fact sane or not. If he's determined to be sane, he'll be executed according to the conviction he has received. A decision of insanity will render the verdict 
inapplicable, and this prisoner will be spared. Insanity is a disability, a fault in the health and aptitude of the condemned man, and thus would render his capital sentence unjust. So, we first have to get our head around this implicit notion embedded in our justice system. We only execute healthy and able prisoners, not those who are damaged and disabled. Secondly, the conceit of the movie is that the psychiatrist has the power to do this based on his professional credentials and experience rather than as a determination of a judge or a jury. One man holds in his hands the future of the condemned prisoner. Thus, the drama of the moment begins. But the interview doesn't proceed as the doctor expects or as the viewers anticipate. Rather, it, rather than pleading for leniency and professing innocence, the condemned man explains the true context of the interview. He is, in his own words, a demon, and he's brought the psychiatrist into the conversation in order to communicate an important message to him. In fact, as a demon, he has no interest in preserving the life of the man who has been convicted and condemned. He only wants to get his message out by means of the psychiatrist. So it's a compelling, and as the movie proceeds, a gripping drama. And it has all the intricacies of a real catch-22. A sane man would plead not to be executed and beg for his life. An insane one might claim he was a demon and claim death has no power over him. A sane man would hardly claim he's a demon, while an insane one might just do that. Thus the catch. Only a man who didn't want to be executed should be, because not wanting to be executed is the sane response, while the one who did want to be execute, executed wouldn't be, since wanting to be executed is an insane response. Now, none of this is directly brought out in the movie, but it's part of the backdrop. It makes you wonder just how hard it is to determine where real insanity lies, in the mind of the unfortunate person? or in the air breathed in a culture in which the illogical and the untenable float around every day. I like complicated questions that make for good drama, and these questions set the movie up to be worth watching. Now, the demon admits after some quick explaining that his name is rendered as nefarious, or more accurately, one who is nefarious. We who recognize the word know it has to do with evil. This name, therefore, is a placeholder, a description of the one who carries it. That's not particularly novel. All names have as their origin some picture or experience illuminating uh, the one who is so named. Kenneth, for example, is Gaelic for handsome. Margarita is Greek for pearl. Francis is Latin for Frenchman. Nefarious means one who is evil or who promises or promotes evil. From the beginning, we get a picture of the one who's speaking. He's telling us not only who he is, but what his purpose is. Of course, if he's a demon, why would we believe that he's telling us the truth? In fact, we're all placed in the Catch-22 situation in which, if we are to believe his testimony that he is a demon who has used this poor man to accomplish some purpose, then there's no reason to trust what he says is true. Demons will lie for any reason or for no reason. But if he's not a demon, then what he's saying is not true. In fact, is probably a sign of mental illness and can be discounted. What are we, the viewers, to do? Believe in this wicked and wild testimony of a man about to die for his crimes? Or should we listen to what he has to say and learn from it as an example of the demonic at work in the world? That's the real heart of the drama. 
the more compelling the testimony from the demon, the more we can justify disbelieving it. And yet, the powerful words invite us to imagine the work and the presence of demons in an enlightening way. So which are we to choose? This movie follows the arc of a renewed interest in the presence of the demonic in the world today. It seems to be everywhere, from Facebook and YouTube to the books offered in various Catholic publishing houses. It seems everybody has a story to tell about the work of the devil in our place and time. Certainly, there seems to be no end of the market for such things. Just a few weeks ago, I reviewed a book recently published by an old acquaintance of mine called The Diary of an American Exorcist. It follows this genre exactly. It's a description of the experiences of a priest who's participated in the exorcism and deliverance ministry in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. for the last several decades. And in a quick search, anybody can find a half dozen notable books in the same vein. Apparently, we can't get enough of this stuff. Partly, it's a response to the flat, secular world that has been the result of the abandonment of religion on a large scale by so many people. When the light goes out in the depths so that we can't see any of the foundations of our being or feel the supports propping up our understanding of the world, then we're all left with, then all we're left with is the bleak outlines of the here and now. When there's no more transcendent meanings, the world that's left is simply the bare succession of facts. And that becomes excruciatingly boring for everyone. When there are no more meanings left in the world and nothing spiritual to live for, We just have the news. And no matter which station you want to tune into, that's pretty thin gruel. Turning to the demonic, whether it's to describe the reality of the world and the function of evil, in which no one really believes anymore, or whether it's the appeal of powers that reach out to us beyond the bare explanation that we're given about how the world works, it seems there is a powerful audience for this notion of the demonic in our situation today. Bored inquirers into the powers of this world stumble across the demonic and are entranced by it because, after all, these powers are real and are enticing as well as useful. They're all the more so because they've been said not to exist by all the smart and smarmy people who are supposed to know. Finding out there are such powers gives the practitioner an edge these others don't have. And it makes life more interesting and much more exciting than it would be otherwise. Evil and the powers of evil at work are like the newest club in town. Only the initiated are on the inside of it. Demons and the demonic seem to be part of the newest style. And for religious people, recognition of the demonic is the de facto recognition of the supernatural. Those who believe in God and in the power of Christ can point to the obvious work of evil in the world and these overt manifestations of this evil as lessons in the reality of the existence of the supernatural aspect of our lives. And if evil is real in this way, then so is the power of God at work in the world. In fact, the first claim of the power of God at work in the world is to overcome the powers of evil made manifest in the world. Here's the irony. As the demonic has become more evident, it has become more popular in just about every religious environment. In addition, the religious aspect of this awareness also serves as a warning to those who are caught up by their interest. By focusing on the testimony of exorcists and the documented occurrences of the devil at work, religious leaders can let everyone know of the dangers involved in these things. It's dangerous to get too close to this kind of thing or to play with the powers involved. 
Also, it's dangerous to imagine such things are mere manifestations of the imagination and therefore have no place in our world. It's an odd conundrum, one that's been at work in society since the waves of secularization began sweeping through it over the last 300 years or so. The paradox is this. The more we define the world as having no place for the claims concerning God and God's presence in the world, and therefore we have reason to believe in God, the more the power of evil and its presence in the world remind us of the reality of the supernatural and the place of God in the world. Now, it's a little frustrating for those of us who speak of God all the time and whose faith in the work of God has always been present. The actor George Burns captured it so well in his familiar lines in the movie for more than 30 years ago, 30 years ago the movie, Oh God. Burns is testifying in court as God, and he's laying out this same paradox encapsulated by the movie The Exorcist that had become so popular then. He said, put some bad makeup on a poor girl and her and have her vomit pea soup across the room, and everybody believes in the devil. But look at an orange sunset, or the beauty of the Grand Canyon, or the innocence of a newborn baby, and nobody believes in God. What he didn't add was that there are quite a few people who began to believe that there might be a God just because they began to be convinced there might be a devil. Who wouldn't want to be sure God was real if he began to understood that the devil was real? It's obvious. And so we come to the heart of the movie, Nefarious. The psychiatrist is tasked with finding out whether the words of this demon are real or not, and if they are, what they might mean to the man who's going to be executed. Of course, the psychiatrist is an atheist, so he has no inclination to believe anything of what's being said. As the devil, as this demon describes the, the process of possession and the means by which demons afflict people, he tries to help the doctor understand what he's facing, just so he'll understand, and oddly enough, so that the doctor will trust what he's being told. In the process of, this, of describing the possession, the demon wants the doctor to affirm and then affiliate with the demon's real message. It turns out the demon wants the whole world to know what his plans are and what the power of the supernatural can be. He wants to become a star, and he wants the psychiatrist to help him. Nefarious wants to come out of the shadows and hit prime time. In his own paradox, he has... he has to convince the atheist expert in psychology that God is real, and the pseudo-intellectual dismissal of belief in God is empty and foolish. Because if God is not real, then the demonic is also not real. And Nefarious wants the incredulous doctor to affirm belief so that he'll affirm the demonic message. Kind of odd, isn't it? Good drama also takes shape through indirection. This movie provides a good deal of good dramatic moments, especially as the demon is trying to convince the doctor of his bona fides. In a quick succession of exchanges, he demolishes the doctor's defense of 21st century morality. The doctor wants to assert that as long as he, as he the doctor, is acting with good intentions, his conscience is clear and his decisions are moral. And in a trice, the demon dissects the vapid notion of these reasonings, and the doctor is left sputtering. Drama brings out of the shadows the uncertainties and the indistinctions that hover there. Again, by way of the reversals inherent to good dramatic irony, Mr. Nefarious wants the psychiatrist to understand just how immoral he, the doctor, has been and how indefensibly hideous his actions are. 
Because once the doc knows this, he can know the reality of true evil and therefore go forward with the demon's plans to make the power of the demonic well known. It's almost an Alfred Hitchcock moment. Ultimately, the drama plays out and the doc hurries his decision based on the demon's timetable. As he does, he plays into the demon's plan, kind of. And in my mind, this is the weakest part of the story. I don't condemn the storyteller. It's a conundrum in every version of this kind of exposition. If the devil is so strong he can't be stopped, then we're all powerless in the face of evil. And so there's no reason for us to oppose or to hinder what the devil can do. We're all just puppets. But if the devil needs our cooperation, then what is the power of evil? Is it no more than the power of convincing? Nothing much more incisive than the powers of Madison Avenue? And if the power of God is utterly and overwhelming decisive so as to cast out all evil, then why does evil still exist and how can its power operate among us? These are, of course, the great questions present in every generation and amid every manifestation of evil or every example of belief in God, for that matter. The movie hits its weakest point when it tries to wrap up all the loose ends of argumentation and insistence. Suffice it to say, the demon is propelled into action, and the action achieves what he has in mind. It's actually quite frightening, no matter how inevitable it might be. One of my favorite exchanges is when the doctor repeated a trope very much popular these days. In fact, it was a topic of a book by a Harvard professor whose specialty is writing about brain function and human evolution. And the claim is that we've been making such steady progress throughout the unfolding of our civilization that there is much less violence, much many fewer deaths, and much more self-fulfilling freedoms among us than ever before. Our present glows with the radiance of our goodness, and the path forward is covered in the roses of even greater promise. And when the doctor proposes this thesis to the demon, the demon laughs loudly. He then takes apart every aspect of this claim, citing the statistics on modern-day slavery, especially sex slavery, abortion, abuse, and the other elements of a postmodern life. Nefarious didn't mention our current celebration of self-castration, useless mastectomies, and lifetime hormone dependencies thrust upon children too young to take an aspirin without their parents' permission. But the point was made. Evil is perennial, and it's got a foothold among us. The demon's description of the sacrifice of children to the god Moloch is nausea-inducing, for sure. And just as an aside, if you'd like to see an astounding takedown of that premise that we're all just getting better and better, look up David Berlinski's book called The Devil's Delusion. You'll get to see what an amazing author Berlinski is, as well as enjoy some incisive, irrefutable, indignant, and really funny writing. And all of this from Berlinski, who's an agnostic, but who just can't stand when atheists don't know what they're talking about. You'll love it. Religion makes an appearance in the film. A chaplain stops by as the conversation between the demon and the doctor begins. This priest is innocuous and excuses himself as quickly as he can. The demon's pleased that this potential danger to his mission leaves the room, but he doesn't want to contend with the man of holiness and power. But the priest is quick to affirm that such questions about demonic control or even demonic existence is complicated and not easily addressed. And when he does leave, Nefarious calms down and the conversation can truly begin. Now, the priest was a weasel, and he was glad not to get involved in the behavior of a man who may or may not have been demon-possessed. And I have more sympathy for him than most do. He had one moment to respond to this troubled man. The psychiatrist there was there as a kind of expert to determine if the man was lying or was trying to tell the truth. 
Of course, the priest didn't know what to do or say exactly in that kind of context. What is the proper protocol for addressing a demon who wants to become known? Especially when you've dealt with crazy people over and over again who want to convince you they're possessed when they are no such thing. Especially in those cases. So the movie got him out of the way quickly. So the drama of the atheist versus the demon could proceed. And in doing so, the movie dismissed the spiritual power inherent in the priestly ministry. At the same time, it didn't have time to go into any of the intricacies of those who cry wolf and are truly no more possessed than a bowler trying to get the perfect score on a hot Friday night. It's a movie worth seeing. I hope I've communicated some of the compelling questions it addresses, as well as the sophistication by which they are addressed. The movie was well made, the script is good, and the care taken in its arguments and the progress of the conversation, they're clever. It's worth seeing. Just let me give everybody one caveat. I like this movie, certainly much more than just about any other movie I've seen having to do with possession or demonic activity. But the caveat is this. When we start talking about demons, it seems we can't talk about anything else. Demons are real. The power of evil in the world is real and has been demonstrated over and over again. In fact, the craziness of the world is very much a product of the power of the demonic at work among us. And let's remember All of us are capable of ruin and wickedness all on our own. Let's not find demons where mere cowardice or pride or appetite is sufficient to explain what's going on. So, go see the movie. You don't have to like it to benefit from it. But I'm pretty sure you're going to think it's worthwhile. Back in just a moment. Welcome back to our final segment, Faith in Verse. We have a poem today called Peter's Interlocutor. I know you, she said, with a nod of the head. You're one of them, of those gathered round him. To cast demons away and end God's odd delay of the eternal kingdom promised to us to come. Oh, no, he said, not I, with him about to die. I have more sense, you know, than to weather this blow. So don't point or accuse so that I might lose the chance to flee and surely avoid to see the horrible outcome of the pain so gruesome, waiting now at the end, there what they intend. Tell no one who I am. Don't offer to lend my identity fully to the pious bullies who want their lives tidy and cast their nets widely to scoop up every life, eliminate every gripe. And so we'll kill easily, execute him feasibly, even if he were no more than odd, rather than the Son of God. Oh, so you do know him and get what he intends? I did catch your accent. It's given me more than a hint. Just admit so I'll know. I haven't misread you so. I like to be right. I can hear at night. You're not fooling me. I don't have to see. You're radiant, you know. Can't deny it, though. You might now disagree. We all know freely. The one you've followed has all things hollowed. You have my answer to all now. While you may be cowed, you are one of them who now follow him. You may hide in the dark, but your choice is stark. You've made it all plain, can't hide or feign. He's now your life. He's teaching the subtle knife, excising foolishness. He is all grace and gift. You'll see in the days to come, his life is the sum of all God has for us. His life will be enough. 
That's Peter's Interlocutor. The invitation to uh, respond to this kind of interesting aspect in our day and time where there's so much interest in what's going on um, among us is one of the things that we do at Living Catholic. I hope that in the weeks to come, you can join us as we explore further. Hope to see you then. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.